Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Your dad was the head of the British fascist movement. Your mother was part of the Mitford clan. Um, their wedding was attended by Adolf Hitler, and when you were one, they were imprisoned without trial in Holloway Jail. It's an extraordinary start to your life. Tell us about your upbringing. Well, it is extraordinary when read out like that, but of course, when you're two or three years old, everything seems normal. It didn't really occur to me that uh, everybody didn't go and visit their parents in uh, some prison in, in London. But uh, it was strange. On the other hand, I think... Uh, I had a lot of very pleasant aspects of my childhood because they were released in 1943 and then they got a small house originally uh, in the countryside and then my father bought a really quite big estate and I was brought up on that till I was 10. So it was a countryside, shooting, uh, lots of outdoor activities, really very pleasant. And your parents and I guess therefore you as a child, they moved in extraordinary circles. I mean, uh, obviously... Um, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were family friends. Um, Churchill himself w was a friend of your father's for a while. Well, yes, you see, the thing is that my father is known because of the fascist movement, but in reality, he, uh, before that, at the, immediately after the end of the First World War, in 1918, when he was just 22, he was elected to Parliament, and he was elected as a Conservative, stood in the same constituency as an Independent, crossed the floor. Uh, he did that mainly because of the black and tan business in Ireland, mm -hmm. which he was very much against. And then he joined the Labour Party. And he was supposed to, his sort of responsibility was sorting out the unemployment problem, which in 1929 was massive. And he fell out with the Labour Party because they wouldn't either do what he wanted or come up with some alternative thing. And that led to the fascists. So he had a long career in conventional politics, during which Churchill was a, an opponent in the House of Commons because he was in favour of what was going on in Ireland my father was against. But in private, they would be perfectly friendly. And then at the same time, uh, very strange in a way, the Churchill's wife was my grandmother's greatest friend. And he was a sort of like an uncle to my mother from, from childhood. So there are all these strange links. Okay. Um, you mentioned there, um, you know, it, it was a classic upper class, I guess, hunting, shooting, fishing um, upbringing once the, the war had ended. Um, is it right you could uh, you could use a shotgun when you were nine? I was given my first shotgun at nine, yes, and I, <laughs> I learned to shoot, obviously, with it, but always supervised by the gamekeeper. And then in Ireland... Uh, you moved to found, the family moved to Ireland in 1950, is that right? I, I should have said that. Yeah, yes, no, of course. Fine, yeah. 1950, the entire family moved to Ireland. My father sold up everything in England, moved to Ireland. 
And so then I was sort of in Galway and on the go shooting on the bogs and had, a, again, a very pleasant life there. Um, I think uh, in reading your, your book, um, which is out and we'll talk about a little later, one of your very first sporting activities was, was hurling. Were you any good at hurling? Well, I wouldn't say I was good, but I, I could do it. And that was a great hurling centre in Ireland. And yeah. I've, I've always thought it is the greatest ball game ever invented because it is so fast and so skilled and fascinating to watch as well as to, to play. Uh, I've never understood why it didn't spread in the way that cricket and football. Maybe uh, it's because you know there were no Ireland didn't have colonies, but if they had done, I think it would have gone all over the world. Your life has been in London during the war, uh, then in Ireland, and at 13 you're uprooted again to go to live in Paris. Well, the my parents uh, in 1950, when they moved to Ireland, they also uh, bought a place near Paris, and so they spent quite a lot of time in France. And then I was allowed to live in Ireland on my own, really. Uh, we had a tutor to begin with, but when my brother moved to France, I was on my own there. So I was allowed a couple of years with no school and nothing except hunting and shooting and, uh, well, playing hurling. So then in, uh, in 1953, when I was 13, then I had to go to France, start to learn French, and then I was sent to a school in Germany. Your, your education, in many ways... Uh, if I said Max Mosley went to Oxford, people would say, yeah, that's absolutely um, standard. But before that, it was very unusual. You didn't go to school. Well, I didn't go to school at all till I was 13. My mother, my brother didn't get on in his prep school, and so my parents got a tutor, and it was more economic for me to have the tutor. Then at a certain point, my um, brother went to France to go to school. Uh, it wasn't economic to have a tutor just for me, so I was left to my own devices for a couple of years in Ireland. And then at the age of 13, my parents sent me to school in Germany. The idea was to learn German and then later to learn French. And uh, I arrived in the German school knowing no German at all. I knew Ja nein and Voice mein Gepäck, which means where's my luggage, because my mother <laughs> thought I might need that if I lost my suitcase. <laughs> but, I mean, it was quite a strange start. Um, do you think it's odd not to have had the, the, the presence of other children around you uh, that the schooling brings? Well, I, I had the presence of other children like people who lived in the neighbourhood uh -huh. and other children both in England before we went to Ireland and then later in Ireland, but not in the classic sense. Uh, but, of course, when I was 13, then I was full on in a school. Yeah. And you went to Oxford. Tell us about your experiences there. Well, that was, uh, I went there to read physics. I really wasn't ready. In fact, the senior tutor at Christchurch said to me, we were scraping the bottom of the barrel, Mosley, when we took you. And that was, uh, that was really how it was. So I, was strugg I struggled academically because I needed another year at school before I went there which was a pity because physics is fascinating and it still fascinates me. And then uh, also while at Oxford, I decided to completely keep out of anything political because I thought the lovely thing about science is you can prove it. You can conduct an experiment and it's right or it's wrong, whereas politics is a matter of opinion. And I'd seen all the things my father had been through. So, uh, But then one day somebody said, if you... If you were to go to the Oxford Union, they'd take you to pieces because of your father. I mean, you'd, you'd be destroyed in argument. Well, uh, <laughs> I immediately... Red rag. Day, red rag. <laughs> I had to go down, immediately went down. So then I got involved in that, and I met all sorts of political people. And I eventually got elected, to my astonishment, I have to say, Secretary of the Union. 
and got on quite well. And that got me into another world. And that eventually led to uh, thinking about going to the bar. Where does the interest in motorsport come from? Well, a strange thing happened. I'd been... uh, I, I had a girlfriend in London before I went to Oxford, and then she and I, uh, she became my wife, Jean, but we got married in 1960 while I was still at Oxford, and then she was working with no money, and uh, <laughs> the person she worked for, I think he was a marshal or some sort of official at Silverstone, right? and he gave her a couple of tickets for what was the Daily Express trophy, which was a big Formula One non-championship race, and we thought, well, let's go. I'd, I'd never been to a motor race. I was not interested in motor racing. Could you drive? I used to drive a car. Yeah. I loved driving a car. And, uh, but the idea of racing was hadn't occurred to me. And I must say, we went to that race in April 1961. It was won by Sterling Moss. It was wet. And the first time I saw the racing cars come under what was then the Daily Express Bridge, I was hooked. I just, as soon as they went past, I thought... If I never do anything else, I've got to do that one day. You can actually remember them coming under the bridge, huh? Oh, I mean, like, in those days, Woodcote was a long, fast uh, right-hander, and it, it just gripped me. You saw this bunch of cars coming, and, I mean, nowadays it would be very, very small beer, but to me, though, then it was, you know, so fast and impressive. Anyway, decided yeah. I got to do that. There's loads of things I've got to ask you about in this section, because um, you were very busy um, immediately after your, your university education, doing all sorts of things, including you went then, perhaps inspired by the visit to Silverstone, to the racing driver's school at Finmere, which is near Silverstone. That's right. That's absolutely yeah. right. And... Uh, it was a little aerodrome, and that was my first sort of experience because they had a really old Cooper Formula Junior car and a very dodgy Lotus 11 sports car. But that was enough to confirm my impression this was something I had to do. Were you any good? No, not then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, and in fact, the first time jumping just very quickly mm-hmm. ahead for a few years, I, ni- it was 1966 before I could get a racing car go racing. And the first time... I drove on a track with other people. I could not believe how fast, even in club racing, they went. Uh, but you get used to it. But no, it took a little time before I started to win races. Do you think your father's reputation, political reputation, as you say, he, he, he had a very varied political career, but of course he's remembered entirely for being the British face of fascism. Do you think it's had an effect on your own life? Oh, yes, because the thing is that I think in, in, a, in any other world... I would have gone into politics. And I, I think one ha- I have to recognise that the being president of the FIA was uh, essentially a political job. But I would have gone into conventional, classic uh, UK politics had I uh, been able to. But in those days, the name was, uh, uh, put it mildly, an obstacle. Mud. Yeah. yeah. The family name was not going to allow you to, be, to do that. I mean, let's be honest. No. I mean, the thing is that immediately you get son of. And... It, the only place I, I, I went where there was never son of was, of course, motor racing. Um, you also joined the Territorial Army as a, par- a paratroop. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, the thing is, after the racing experience, seeing it in 1961 and then going to a couple of races on the continent with my wife, I couldn't go racing, so I wanted to do something interesting. And then I'd always felt, in those days, the atmosphere was very different. One, one felt that there might be a war at any time. 
you know, all these things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, those sort of things. With the Russians, with the communists, yeah. Yes, exactly. And so uh, I felt, well, I ought to have a bit of military experience. I was relieved that I was too young to do national service. I just missed national service. And I wouldn't have wanted to do that because it's two years out of your life. But I thought, well, I ought to join the TA. And then I thought, well, I might as well join an elite uh, group. And it was the Paras. And it was, I must say, one of the best things I've ever done. Let me ask you a very direct question. You're significantly older than me, and I'm twice your size. Could you kill me in this room right now? No. I, <laughs> I could try, but I'd fail. The I'm thing sure. Is that... No, you could kill me with some kind of jujitsu you learned in the paras. Come on. No, the paras... Kill um... me with a spoon. <laughs> the, uh, I, I wish it were true that, uh, like that, but the, the, the fact of the matter is that it was very good from the point of view that you learn to be, in a difficult situation, learn to be aggressive. But I, we didn't do we didn't really do unarmed combat of any significance. And uh, but it did teach one that first of all the mentality of being aggressive in a difficult situation, and secondly that when you feel you're absolutely shattered, you can't walk another step. In fact, you can keep going another twenty four hours if you really have to. And I think that's a very valuable lesson to learn early in life. And I suspect in some of the things that have happened to you and around you in the following 50 years, uh, you probably put that into use. Um, you've done physics at university. How did you get to be a lawyer? Well, uh, A barrister, indeed. Uh, well, it, uh, the thing is that, in the end, it's, it's a question of passing exams. And so the, the, once I'd done the physics, I then joined Gray's Inn and went through the various procedures, passed the bar, bar part one and part two, and then you you do a pupillage with an experienced barrister, and after you finished all of that, you're on your own. Did you like the law? I did. I mean, it, it it it's uh, it is fascinating in a lot of ways because some of the questions that have to be answered are really very interesting, very debatable, and there's an excitement. I mean, I didn't do many jury trials because I did sort of patents and trademarks, but. I, I think I did five jury trials altogether, and I found them interesting, to put it mildly, because you kind of interact with the jury, and you get a feeling, you can feel what they're thinking and adjust yourself accordingly. And it, I can imagine that, in a way, in another life, it would have been interesting to do that. And that's what, and that's what the, that exact interaction between you, the judge, and the jury, is exactly why... Every, every writer eventually writes a, a courtroom drama, don't they? Because it's so fascinating. I think that's, that's true. I, I mean, it's very... Uh, I mean, it, it, it's a sort of concentrated version of other aspects of life. So that side of it. And I did find it fascinating. But then you see, one day when I'd started racing, I was walking up Middle Temple Lane and I saw a very senior QC coming the other way. And I thought, if everything goes well, that's me in 30 years' time. And I just didn't fancy it. I, mean, I wanted something more exciting. So presumably you were using your work as a barrister to finance your early adventures as a racing driver. Well, yes. I, as soon as I was qualified, I was able to teach in the evening. So what I used to do to pay for the motor racing, I used to go and teach every evening uh, bankers' law, um, actually university degree law, which I'd never done myself, company law, things like that, in various... There are a lot of evening classes in London, so I used to teach, and that provided the money which paid for the club racing car. You've already been a paratroop, um, a physicist uh, and a lawyer. You're now a, uh, in the late 60s, you're a racing driver. You, you take it up se- seriously, I think it's fair to say. Well, yes, uh, 1966 was the earliest I could afford to get hold of a racing car. 
But once I did that, then uh, I started the race. I knew nobody in racing. So the very first race I went to, I I didn't even know how to start the car. I couldn't afford to take or to play, uh, employ somebody to come with me. And so I had to go to the scrutineers, the people who check the cars, and get them to start it. And then I was <laughs> going around uh, the circuit I thought quite quick, but way behind everybody. And then the leaders came past me uh, much faster than I was going. And it was really quite quite a, a shock how fast even club racing was. But it took a little time. And then uh, before long, I started to... I had The second season I did, 1967, I started winning races. And by 68, you're into Formula 2. And that, you know, and, uh, let me just ask you, because you mentioned it in the last section, and I, I, the thread has stuck in my mind. You said that, then you said it there again, you didn't know anybody in motor racing. Um, and in, earlier you said that the one place where you didn't feel that your family background, your father, let's be honest about it, was holding you back was in, in, in the world of motor racing. Do you think that's one of the reasons why you were so attracted to it once you got into it and why you've stayed in it your whole adult life? Well, probably yes, because it was a world where, uh, it, as, as said, uh, my father didn't feature and I first really real, understood that when uh, the, they put the practice times up, I remember at Goodwood, and the drivers sort of stood around looking, and I didn't know any of them. And then I heard one of them say, Mosley, Max Mosley, he must be some relation of Alf Mosley, the coach builder in Leicester. <laughs> and I thought, ah, oh, you know, this is a world where they don't know about Oswald Mosley. And then, as I say, by 68, you're into Formula 2. And, of course, in those days, it was very different from what it is now because... Formula One drivers came and went into Formula Two quite happily. They did. I mean, the the Formula One drivers in a weekend where there wasn't a Grand Prix would come and do Formula Two. So the very first race I did, in, it was in 1968, and it was just amazing. I was just a club driver. I shouldn't have been there. I mean, you wouldn't be allowed to do that now. And uh, one row in front of me on the grid was Graham Hill, who was a world champion. Two rows further up was Jim Clark, double world champion. Also there were people like Chris Amon, uh, I think Clay Regazzoni, the Matra Works drivers, the Ferrari Works team, the Matra Works team. And I sat there thinking, what am I doing here? But it was an amazing feeling. But in that first race, it was wet. And as soon as we, in those days, Hockenheim was a long, long straight out to the back and a long straight back. And as soon as we turned the corner, there was thick spray, and I couldn't see anything. And at a certain point, I thought, this is crazy. I was just looking for the tops of the trees to see which way to go. So I backed off, and I thought all the people behind me, because there were some behind me, would come past, but they didn't. And then eventually we got back into the stadium, and you could see who was in front, and immediately in front of me was Graham Hill. Your book, which is out now, as I say, I'll, I'll keep mentioning it because it is worth it, Formula One and Beyond, everything that happens in it is heightened reality. I mean, it just, yours has been an extraordinary life. Um, and in some ways, the tragedies are also extraordinary, the way they appear. You're racing at 68 in Formula Two in Hockenheim, and it's the race where Jim Clark dies. Exactly. I mean, that was a, an extraordinary experience because I realised during that heat that uh, because it was in two heats the the race two parts somebody had gone off into the trees on the very fast uh, fast straight or slight curve i didn't realize it was jim clark and as i got back into the pit into the paddock got out the car the public members of the public were in the paddock a german came up to me and asked in german if jim clark was dead and that was the first time i realized that it, that's who it was 
And so he, uh, it, that obviously made a big impression, but also difficult for me was I'd always explained to my wife that it was quite safe as long as you were careful. And so, of course, when I got home, uh, she said, I suppose Jim Clark's was careful. And, and he's certainly a better driver than you. He's twice world champion. He can get killed and you can't. Is that the case? And, of course, that's quite difficult to answer. It's a perfectly legitimate question as well to ask. In, entirely. Particularly, see, as my, my wife and I got married before either of us had ever seen a motor race, never mm -hmm. mind them. Um, so you had taken a kind of bizarre turn, um, though she may have known you well enough, Max, that these things may have happened to her in her married life. In fact, you were in the race where Jim Clark died. Your teammates that day, Piers Courage, Chris Lambert, within two years had also died. Actually, uh, Chris Lambert died that same year, yep. two months later, and, and Piers Courage died in 1970. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you two questions, if you like. Uh, I don't want to be a pop psychologist, but I I'll ask you... Um, tell us about the, what, what it was like racing in those days in terms of safety and do you think that the experience of that race with Clark and obviously what happened to Chris and Piers is one of the reasons why you've spent a lot of your time as an administrator that we'll hear about later in the programme actually banging on the table about safety well yes because the thing is that it was obviously it was obviously massively dangerous the, the cars were a space frame so like a bicycle frame with a car fiberglass cover on the outside and then you lay down in this uh, frame between two long thin aluminium petrol tanks so there you were in the middle of the petrol in an accident the petrol would go everywhere there was no uh, I mean it, it, it you only had to look at it to see how dangerous it was but if you said to anybody in the administration of the sport this is unnecessarily dangerous all sorts of things ought to be done the the reply was uh, well, first of all, you don't have to do it. Nobody is forcing you to go motor racing. If you don't like it, don't do it. And the second one was, if you think a corner's dangerous or you think the trees are in the wrong place or something, well, slow down like you would on the road. Well, that, of course, is completely unrealistic, and it was so frustrating because I found those replies so stupid. And I resolved even in those days, if ever I get into a position of some sort of power in this sport, I would do something about it. Why did you actually... Quit racing, Max. Because I wasn't good enough, essentially. And, uh, I mean, I, I think it first dawned on me when I was in a Formula 2 race in Zolder and Jochen Rint got hit. He was on pole position. Somebody hit him at the start. He had to wait until all the cars had gone by until he caught up. Well, after about eight laps, I started seeing blue flags and realised that it was Rint behind me. I thought, he can't possibly be lapping me this soon. But anyway, he then came past me on a very fast right-hander, and it was just like another league, uh, the way he drove. And interestingly, a couple of years later in Monaco, he won the Formula One race there, uh, the Monaco Grand Prix in 1970. He was catching Jack Brabham, and Jack went off on the last corner, and Jochen won. And I was talking to him after the race. I said, Jochen, that was amazing, etc., etc." He said, you know, there are only two times in my life when I've driven absolutely flat out. One was just now in the Monaco Grand Prix. He said, the other was a Formula 2 race in Zolder. <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, well, thank you, Jochen, because that's really what made me decide I couldn't <laughs> do it to that level. And so that, that really, uh, I think, uh, if you, the dangerous thing with sport is if you're almost good enough to be world class, but not quite, now, I wasn't almost good enough. I was, uh, I was sort of 
like in tennis, for example, I was good enough to play at Wimbledon, but not good enough to get beyond the first or second round. Like so many British people. Well, this is the thing. And and actually somebody, a very successful, not world champion driver, once said to me, you were fortunate because you found out fairly early on. And you could spend 10 years and not before you finally have to recognise you're not going to be world champion. Max, having established and clearly explained to us in the last section of the programme that you weren't good enough to be a top racing driver, what you do next, I suppose, is is logical, but uh, I also worry that people who are addicted to something, and I think you might be addicted to motor cars, uh, racing cars, um, make bad decisions. But uh, you decided to set up an actual racing team to develop a car. Well, yes. I mean, it wasn't just me. The thing is that the way it happened, strange... My first year at Oxford, I was doing physics, obviously, but there was another person doing physics called Robin Hurd, who later went on to engineering. He's a brilliant engineer. He got, I think, the second highest first ever in the history of the engineering school at Oxford. He worked on Concorde. Then he went to McLaren and designed cars. And then he was moonlighting for Frank Williams, uh, doing the rear suspension for a car for Piers Courage. While my Formula 2 car was living in Frank Williams' garage, and Robin and I ran into each other there, not having seen each other since Oxford nearly 10 years before. And we just got together and decided that there was room for another team in Formula 1. And you have to remember that in those days, 1969, there were several races where there were only 13 cars on the grid. And of those 13 cars, probably eight were what you might call serious racing cars, and the rest were just there to pick up the start money and maybe drop some oil and I think, stop. I think it's worth pointing out to the younger listeners that the very slick operation you see now as, form, as Formula One, um, that was not the case then. It was, it was much more shambolic, wasn't it? It was completely shambolic. And, and in fact, it was very much second string to the sports cars. Cars that ran at Le Mans, things like that, were much bigger, much more important. So we decided there was room for another team, but we didn't have any money. So then... Uh, Robin had a, a friend called Alan Reese, who was actually Jochen Rint's teammate and manager in Formula 2. And he had a friend who worked for, I think, GKN doing production and so on. So the four of us got together and started this company, and we had £10,000 between us. The March uh, Motor Company and the M is you, uh, Mosley. The uh, A was just to make a letter, yeah. then the R is Reese, the C was Coca, who was the production mm-hmm. man, and the H at the is end was your friend was Hurd. Robin Hurd, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that was March, and it was, um, we started, we actually found the factory in September 69, but we had the most amazing group of people working with us, and over that winter, we put the cars together. We turned up at the beginning of March the following year, 1970, uh, with our works team at Kyle Army in South Africa. We'll talk about that in just one second. I must, again, it's in your book, and it's too good to let pass for this programme. Um, you borrowed the two and a half grand that you needed from your mum. Your father said that, quote, you would certainly go bankrupt, but it would be good training for something more serious later on. He's not the most encouraging fella, is he? <laughs> well, he was, of course he was right. I mean, <laughs> we so nearly did go bankrupt, actually. In fact, we were rescued mainly by Walter Hayes, who was then sort of Mr. Big in Ford in the UK, who made us increase the price of the Formula One cars that we were selling because it was a stroke of luck. Ken Tyrrell, who had Jackie Stewart driving for him, had no car for set 1970. So they came to buy cars from us, backed by Walter Hayes. So it's a long, and long, complicated story. But the bottom line is that that good bit of advice about the price 
kept us in business. And indeed, um, you, you say you go to racing Formula One, amazingly, within a year you're racing in Formula One, but also your cars have been, I mean, obviously the engineer is some kind of mad genius because the cars have been bought up by other teams and as many as five of the cars on the grid had actually been marches, weren't they? Just rebadged as other things, the Tyrrells included. Exactly. There were two Tyrrells, there were two of ours, and then the other coup, in a way, there was somebody called Andy Granatelli, who was Mr. Big in American racing, and his driver, Mario Andretti, they just won the Indy 500. And he bought a car, and he also sponsored us with his STP product. So we had all of this at the first race. Something about you and how your life is going to go is revealed in this you're still young you're in a nascent team and yet you've got five cars on the grid you've organized major deals with firestone and as you say stp i mean that beautiful 70s logo they used to have on everybody's uh, jumpsuit this is your legal training this is your is this your personality as well you're good at negotiating max i don't know i to me it always seems when things go well like that always seems it's luck and, you know, you, 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 I think a lot of people who are successful, they tend to overlook the fact that luck plays a huge part. And you, you hear about the people who got lucky and you don't hear about the people who, for no fault of their own, failed. So I, I don't claim any great talent. I think just things happen to fall the right way. OK, tell us about then. Tell us about March then, the team, and how it did. And those two or three years at the, at the start of the early 70s when it's very much one of the big names on the grid. Well, yes. I mean, 1970, we, we took our two works cars down to Kailami and the front row of the grid then was Jackie Stewart and Chris Amon, so Tyrrell's driver and our driver, and they had identical times. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, you can imagine there was this sort of moment where Robin and I walked from the pits down to where the grid was, a little bit further down the track. And there were our cars on the front of the grid. We'd done it in six months. And you could just feel the hostility from the other Formula One teams. And we, there was a touch of hubris there, actually, because everything we set out to do, we'd done. And uh, then we, we didn't win that race. Uh, something went wrong with our car and Stuart had a tyre problem. But the next two races were non-championship races, both of which we won. One was won by Stuart, the other was won by Amon in our car. And then Jackie Stewart won the next world championship race in Spain. And not only did he win that race, but he lapped the entire field. So imagine somebody comes with a new car that nobody's heard of and the second outing in a world championship one of the cars laps the entire field. And you'll forgive me, you're also a posh person and you're also a very handsome youth. Um, I can imagine there's a great deal of resentment. I think, yeah, I don't know about posh or handsome, but it's certainly... Well, I do. <laughs> it was certainly, um, there was resentment. And it took the teams, uh, the other teams, quite a long time to forgive us. One of the things you will have learned uh, in, the, in, the, in the subsequent 40 years is that, of course, Formula 1 always has one or two super powerful teams. Ferrari have always got a lot of money, um, etc. And then the rest of them are, are scraping by, even today, uh, even though the, vast, the, the amount of money's changed, they're scraping by from hand to mouth. And although you're very successful, it's still a tremendous struggle, isn't it? The, 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 the following years, having had this great success uh, early on, the next couple of years, it's not all sort of wine and roses, is it? No, we didn't have enough money. And, of course, fundamentally, the business we were in was capital intensive. But the problem was we didn't have any capital. 
So that's not a good way to go on. And uh, I think the second year, we were very lucky because we couldn't afford a big driver, but we had Ronnie Peterson. Turned out to be an extraordinary talent. Robin did an absolutely excellent car. Peterson finished second in the World Championship. We once again finished third in the Constructors' Championship, and that was in 1971, uh, but always with not enough money. And we made a, then we made a fundamental mistake, which is we designed a revol- or Robin designed a revolutionary car for 72. It was. It was revolutionary. It had all sorts of features. Its only small problem was it didn't work. No, it wasn't quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was a setback, and then we had to modify and use a modified Formula 2 car and so on. So all of that aspect was difficult. But the other side of it was that in addition to Formula 1, we were producing Formula 2, Formula 3 cars, Can-Am cars, all sorts of cars. And the next category up from, or down rather, from Formula 1, Formula 2, we were very successful. And, for example, by 1973, we were winning everything in Formula 2 using a BMW engine. So the commercial side of the operation worked very well. The Formula 1 side was always difficult. Um... Talk to me about James Hunt. I'm, 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 we're having a handbrake turn here, if you like. Um, I know you met him early in your career at Snetterton, I think was the first time you came across him. In 76, he wins the uh, Drivers' Championship um, with McLaren. What are your memories of James? Well, the thing is that I, I didn't know him to begin with. I was with my Formula 2 car testing at Snetterton, and I came up behind a Formula Ford, which is much slower than a Formula 2 car, and driven far faster than it should have been. It was sort of quite irritating because, you know, okay, I could keep up with him and probably overtake him, but uh, I should have been much faster. Anyway, we get back to the paddock and this tall, gangly person got out of the Formula Ford wearing scruffy old jeans and plimsolls, like rubber-soled shoes, which you're absolutely supposed not to do because it slips on the oil and mm-hmm. so on. That was the first time I came across him. And then uh, later, uh, 1970, he he was with somebody else, somebody called Brendan McInerney, who, uh, who provided the money, a Formula 3 team. And so he ended up driving, ended up driving for us in Formula 3. And then uh, in 19, uh, must be 1972, the Formula 3 car that we had wasn't very good. And James had trouble with it at Monaco and told the world it wasn't very good. So um, I fired him. I said, you know, if you're a works driver, you, you can't rubbish the car. Anyway, but we were all sort of good friends. And he uh, obviously needed to keep his career going. So we lent him a 1971 Formula 2 chassis. And he got to know Lord Hesketh, who was in those days a rich young man. And Hesketh bought him a, an engine. This was put in our car. He was successful. And then the following year, uh, Hesketh took him into Formula One. Lots of the modern drivers dress up like off the track, like they're rock stars. But James Hunt actually was a rock star, wasn't he? Yeah, no, he was. And he, uh, he was amazingly popular. And he was fun. You know, the thing is that, uh, I probably shouldn't tell this, but he once, for example, a bit later on when he was driving for McLaren, we were in Rio and there was a, a sponsor's uh, party that we both needed to go to for various reasons and we decided to share a car 
And he said, do you mind if we stop on the way and visit a friend of mine? So I said, no, that's fine. So we stop at this very posh block of flats, go to the top, a wonderful penthouse looking out over Rio, and the owner uh, sat us down and he put a piece of polished marble in front of us. And then onto it, he carefully put three lines of white powder. And James turned to me, because he knew I was a bit of a prude about that sort of thing, and he said, you don't want yours, Max, do you? And uh, <laughs> yeah, he took, he had both of them. And we then went to the party uh, with James in a very good mood. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You quit in, 19, uh, in the mid-70s and became the sort of legal advisor to the Formula One Constructors Association, FOCA, one of many acronyms we'll be wrestling with over the next 20 minutes or so. Um, tell us about the Constructors Association. Why did you decide to become an administrator? Was it natural progression? Well, it, it really started when we... Start, uh, began March back in 1970, there was a, an association of the teams. It was called the Formula One Constructors and Entrance Association in those days. So we, March, became members because they were in Formula One. So I used to go to the meetings. Then uh, in 1971, or at the end of 1971, a couple of years later, Bernie Ecclestone bought the Brabham team. So he turned up. And so then the two of us, all the way through the early 70s, used to negotiate on behalf of both of, of all the teams. When I was, uh, in the end, I got to the stage where I'd sort of had enough of March, and but I remained a director for many years after I really left, and I sold my shares to my partner, Robin Hurd, who, of course, then the company became really successful once I'd gone. But anyway, Robin then, um, he continued... I, the Formula One people wanted me to stay involved, so I was given this sort of label of legal advisor, but what re was really happening was that the, my sort of team of Bernie and me had been going since the beginning of the 70s. It was just continuing that. 
tell us about Bernie Eccleston. Um, we'll talk about your relationship with him a little later on, but uh, he'd been a second-hand car salesman, had he, prior to getting... Well, he was a second-hand car dealer, but amazingly successful. He was reputed to be the best in England, and people used to come from all over the country to do a deal with him and see if they could best him. I don't think anybody ever did. So there are endless stories about Bernie and his doings as a car dealer but he was a brilliantly successful businessman and when he came into Formula One it was um, a big change because I could see here was somebody who understood business and the two of us got together it was sort of natural partnership. Did you get on very well as people? We did you see the thing is I mean we didn't always agree uh, particularly later on when we had the FIA I was the FIA and he was the sort of in a way the opposition but you could never really fall out with Bernie because of the jokes. I mean, he he loves jokes, and uh, you know, one had endless fun. So, sort of on a personal level, it was always fun working with him. Okay, so FOCA represents the constructors. Yeah, talk to me about the FISA FISA. Who are they? Because well, we're, we're coming to a big war now. Well, uh, just to set the scene, perhaps. Yeah. The FIA is a world federation of all the big motoring organisations. And most of these big motoring organisations have a sporting arm. For example, the J- Japanese Automobile Federation has a sport department. The German uh, equivalent has a sports department and so on. Yeah. And all those sports departments belong to the sporting arm of the FIA. And the sporting arm of the FIA in those days was the FISA. Federation International of Sport Automobile, in mm-hmm. French, obviously. Uh-huh. So in the early 80s, your time is taken up. You're running FOCA, um, the constructors, with a, what becomes a war against FISA. What was that about? Well, uh, <laughs> it's fundamentally you had the, the British teams, which were all racing teams that had to make a, a living from racing. People like Frank Williams. And Colin so Chapman. Colin, Colin Chapman and so on. So that was the British section. Then the continental section tended to be big car companies. For example, at that particular moment in 1980, you had Ferrari, which actually belonged to Fiat. You had Renault and you had Alfa Romeo. And so they were all very good at engines. We had to rely entirely on the Cosworth engine, which... Was had to be produced commercially. They couldn't spend fortunes on research and development. So uh, the British teams had to be good at chassis. So the fundamental conflict was that we didn't want them to interfere with our chassis, which was mainly aerodynamics. They wanted to be able to minimise the role of the chassis and maximise the role of the engine, because that's where they were strong. Mm -hmm. So there was a fundamental conflict there. And... The, the row gets to such a state that uh, you and your cohorts threaten to break away um, and start a, a new championship. There's an amazing picture in the middle of the book. It says here, Hotel de Crillon, Paris, 1980. And then left to right, Frank Williams, Colin Chapman, yourself, Bernie Eccleston, Ken Tyrrell. I mean, it's literally a who's who of British motor racing history. And Emerson Fittipaldi. Um announcing the World Federation of Motorsport right next door to the FAA headquarters. I mean, how serious was this? Well, it, it was serious in a way because... Serious picture, I've got to give you that. We, Of course, we were sitting there very grand in that very grand hotel announcing this new federation. But the truth of it was we had no money. 
and uh, <laughs> it was all bluff. But what happened, we, we decided the only way to break the deadlock, because the FISA was very much controlled by the big manufacturers on the continent. I always used to say the rules were made somewhere between Paris and Turin always. Mm -hmm. And so we, we had to, in a way, break the mold. On the other hand, what we did have was we had contracts with the various race organizers as FOCA. And so at a certain point, we realized, because we got very good London solicitors, Alan and Overy then, they said, uh, you can sue the governing body for interference with your contractual relations with the organizers. But there's one small problem, is if you want to run your own federation, you can't complain about not being able to run in the Formula One World Championship. So about four weeks or five weeks after we started the World Federation of Motorsport, for which, by the way, we, we stole all the FIA's regulations, and we just took the whole lot, and they said, you can't, and we said, well, we're going to. Anyway, uh, we then cancelled the World Federation and brought proceedings to hold the organisers to their contracts and brought proceedings against the FIA for interference with contractual relations. And that really, <laughs> that began the whole process, which ended up with a thing called the Concord Agreement back in 1981, which has more or less governed Formula One ever since. Well, it's a very important actual moment, isn't it? Because from what I can understand it, and believe me, um, my one year at the law school in Leicester has not prepared me for the document. Um, essentially, uh, FISA went on to control the rules of the racing, but FOCA um, got control of the promotion and television rights. And of course, that's where we get the Bernie Eccleston's incredible six and yourself in negotiating TV deals around the world that have seen Formula One uh, grow up out of them. We'll talk more about that a little later. Soon after, in 1982, you left FOCO, left motor racing, actually, um, to join the, uh, to start to work for the Conservative Party. Tell us about that. Well, it's interesting. the thing is that my father died in 1980. So when that moment came, I thought, well, now, uh, if I extricate myself from motorsport, maybe I can do real politics. And my uncle and aunt up in Derbyshire they had Harold Macmillan staying with him. He was uh, my uncle's uncle, and he was staying with them at Chatsworth. And they invited me up there to talk to him about possibly going to politics. And I sat up till late in the night. He used to like to go to bed very early, late, and uh, sat late in the night talking to Harold Macmillan. And he said, you'll have no problem, because the people at the top in politics won't have any problem about your father, and the people... The voters certainly won't care. If they think you're any good, they'll vote for you. And he was very positive about the whole thing. But it was awful sort of talking to him. He used to keep lighting a pipe. Then he had these matches, and he didn't seem to notice they were burning down to his fingers, and he didn't seem to feel. And I was sitting there sort of horrified by this while he was explaining all that. Anyway, that led me then to start to have a go at politics. What happened when I did, I realised that it's what I really wanted to do. But it also became clear that... Between the people at the top of politics and the voters are all these people running local associations, and they're the ones who decide you get a seat. So after I'd been doing this for two or three years, I realised that I might easily find myself with no seat and five, ten years, and by then I'd have been in my 50s, and by English politics standards, getting a bit old. So... 
after three or four years of this, I decided to stop and go back into motorsport, where, of course, I knew a lot of people. And, uh, well, Bernie and I then had dinner with uh, Balest and said I ought to come and run the manufacturer's part of the FISA. And I could see he was uneasy, but uh, he agreed. Max, in the early 90s, you were both um, president of FISA and then a couple of years later became the president of the FIA, the top man in Formula One, if you like. There's two things I want to talk to you about from this period of your life of really running the, the sport. When I put this out on Twitter that I was talking to, the number of uh, petrol heads who came on and said, ask him how come we gave Bernie Eccleston the sport. And we'll come on to that, and I really will come on to it. But before that, I think the other strand of your work in this time is to do with safety. Um, and obviously, I guess the moment where this becomes something that people can no longer hide away from in Formula One is that these incredibly powerful cars are, are doing something they shouldn't be doing. It was at the San Marino in Imola in 1994, where... Uh, of course, Ayrton Senna died. People often forget Roland Ratzenberger also died the same weekend. Can you tell us about that weekend and the effect it had on you and, and the sport? Well, and uh, up to then, it had always seemed to me that Formula One was still unnecessarily dangerous. But it got much safer because the materials used for the cars were much better and so on. There have been improvements. But Imola, there was Ratzenberger died, Senna died, but there were also three life-threatening incidents that sort of got forgotten. There was the Barrichello accident, there was somebody in the grandstand got hit by a piece of uh, car and nearly died, and there was a mechanic who was knocked down in the pit lane. So it was suddenly a cluster of things. And then a fortnight later, at the Monaco Grand Prix, Carl uh, Wendinger had an accident, had really serious head injuries. And then what had been complacency turned to absolute panic. And it gave me the opportunity to start a, a real revolution about safety. And what had happened up to then, it had all been sort of ad hoc. And the improvements of safety had largely, largely been a byproduct of improvements in the construction of the chassis. Now it was possible to set up a group to look scientifically at safety and do it systematically. And the person we got to head that was Professor Watkins. And Sid Watkins, a sort of major motor racing figure, he was the professor of neurology. Uh, he was the brain surgeon at the London Hospital. And so a real expert uh, doctor, obviously, but he had a very uh, scientific approach and he really understood about the scientific method. So he started running that. And that's, in one form or another, Sid sadly is now dead, but that went on for a number of years and it's still going on today systematic research into safety and trying to make sure people don't get hurt. To go back one second, um, when, when Ratzenberger and uh, Ed Senna died, you went to Roland's funeral. Um, were they on the same day or something? Why did you go to, to, to they, they Roland's? Were, for practical purposes, on the same day. Yeah. I went to, everybody went to Senna's, and I thought, you know, there's Roland. He'd worked really hard. His family had helped him. And it was a very sad little funeral, well, funerals are always sad, mm -hmm. but a sad funeral in Austria. I felt so sorry for the parents and for his partner and a beautiful girl. And, uh, you know, it was necessary. It, it was uh, clearly the right thing to do to me. And in the context of talking about two people being dead, my next question is, is downright tasteless, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When yourself and Sid and others set about making the sport more safe, is it a tightrope? Because 
It is the idea that people are doing something very dangerous that has, I think, kept Formula One as such a popular sport. Is it tightrope to walk, not to make it too safe? I'm not sure. You see, the conventional wisdom always was that if you make it safe, people won't want to watch it. And people are waiting for the accident. The truth of the matter, I think, is that nobody likes to see someone get hurt. They quite like to see a big incident, but they really like to see the drivers walk away. And it's interesting that the safer it's become, the bigger the audience. It's been the exact opposite of that prediction. And I think human beings, they, as you say, they like to see someone doing something apparently dangerous, but they don't want to see you get hurt. I guess, you know, because when you look at the American form, particularly IndyCar racing, when they're going within a quarter of an inch of a wall, I mean, it's it, whether, you know, hopefully you know, nobody gets up, but it's an amazing spectacle because they're driving these cars exactly as powerful as Formula One cars. Yes. At 200 miles an hour, Along a wall, I mean, it's incredible. Uh, no, it is. It, it's, it's extraordinary and, uh, uh, and, and fascinating to watch. But you see, I, my feeling about this, and p- some people might disagree, is I think a, a young person should come into a sport uh, in one piece and they should leave it in one piece. Yeah, and same with the, rugby and everything else. Exactly it, that. Yeah. And, and, you know, exactly. And the uh, duty of the administrator is to minimise the risk. And you're never going to make it zero. It's like the aviation industry. But you constantly work to get the percentages down and down. As I say, when I put on Twitter that we were going to be talking at length today, um, people, uh, I think Formula One fans largely, were saying, ask him how come under his watch, Bernie Eccleston got hold of the sport and then has ended up owning it. And they seem very very serious about it, Max. Well, yeah. The thing is, one of the great myths is that the FIA under me gave Bernie all the rights. Well, the truth of it is this, that uh, he acquired the television rights from the individual organisers. They belong to each race. For example, the Monaco Grand Prix owned the television rights of the Monaco Grand Prix. Bernie got them from the individual organisers and gradually got the whole lot. The other great source of his money is doing deals with the race organiser for the teams. Now, that's interesting because... When he first started doing this, the teams authorised him to deal on their behalf. Then you would get a situation where an organiser would say, I don't want the financial risk, I want you to take the financial risk. And Bernie would say to the teams, should we all do this together? And they would say, no, no, Bernie, you want to take the risk, you take the risk. But we just want our money guaranteed. So Bernie guaranteed them their money. And meanwhile, he was getting more and more from the organisers. And after 20 years of that, he was getting a big income from signing race deals on behalf of the teams and a big income from the television, which he got from the race organisers as part of those teams. The FIA had nothing to do with it. Overall, and I know you've had your, your, your problems with Bernie in, in latter years, um, overall, do you think the 30, 35 years that he's been virtually owning the sport has been good for it? I think it's been excellent because, you see, if you go back to the, the early days, say when Bernie first came in, if he'd done the same thing with sports cars, it would probably have been easier. They were bigger and richer, the sports car races in those days than Formula One. He could have done the same thing with the rallies. And had that happened, either the sports cars or the rallies, they would have been as big as Formula One now. There's nothing magic about Formula One. There's lots of forms of motorsport that are as good or better. Or if you look at motorbike racing, somebody could have done that with motorbike racing. It's thrilling to watch. It's just that Bernie was a a one-off and he's done a brilliant job. And that's why people all over the world watch Formula One. 
I want to take you on to another one of your battles then, because as we could talk about, I mean, the deal that happened with when Bernie got hold of the Formula One, the rights and everything, the, I know the European Commission were involved, but let, let's, let's move on. Because another um, issue that you had to deal with was obviously the, the great uh, advertising cash cow for motor racing was cigarettes. The John Player, the JPS car, the lovely black and gold livery and all the rest of it. Um, I, I'm, I'm neutral on all this. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. But uh, it must have been terribly difficult when the governing, the governing authorities decide, right, there's going to be no more cigarette advertising. Well, yes. I, I mean, first of all, we were quite happy to get rid of the cigarette advertising, providing it was done gradually. And so uh, the, a lot of sort of wheeling and dealing on that. But I remember once being inv- invited in front of the Health Select Committee in the House of Commons with Bernie. And uh, they were having a go at us. And Bernie left it to me to deal with uh, about the suggestion of being immoral that we were allowing tobacco advertising in Formula One and people smoking. And I said, well, I'm very glad you raised that. I said this to the committee because... Everybody on this committee has voted in favour of a European rule that tobacco growing should be subsidised in Greece. And tobacco growing in Greece is subsidised to an extent of three times as much as the total sponsorship income from tobacco in Formula One. So give us a third of that and we get rid of tobacco tomorrow. But we actually, the FIA, have no power to get rid of it. And uh, I, uh, what I was really doing was, in a polite way, saying to them they were completely hypocritical because they could easily have said, we're not going to subsidise tobacco growing in Greece. They didn't. Nobody on that committee raised it in the House of Commons. So, I mean, there was an awful lot of nonsense went on. But fundamentally, I don't think anybody ever took up smoking or continued to smoke because of tobacco advertising falling on. It was brand awareness. And, you know, whether you smoke brand X or brand Y, not whether you smoke. Obviously, the, the really huge names in household advertising, your, your Kellogg's Cornflakes, etc., in America, they sponsor the stock car racing, where what look like street cars, ordinary public cars, but they're doing 200 miles an hour. And you can see that because there's plenty of space to put Kodak, whatever it was then, onto the car. As Formula One cars have got smaller and skinnier and skinnier, um, they've become very useless advertising vehicles, haven't they? I think they have. But on the other hand, I think probably some of the contracts uh, are bigger because the audience is so big. The rear wing's pretty good, and they seem to get a lot of uh, a lot of mileage out of uh, you know what space they have got. Let me ask you another question. Then, um, obviously, the life you've led means that you've met politicians, um, artists, actors. People from every every field of life. I won't ask you the, the negative question. Which one did you not get on with? Who do you think is the most remarkable person or people you've met? Ooh. We hadn't rehearsed this question, so I'll give you a chance to think about that. Yes, yeah, so that, that's, that's really quite difficult because a, a lot of people are remarkable in a lot of different ways. I think probably uh, Martin McGuinness. Because, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> I met him together with uh, Ian Paisley in Northern Ireland to do with the Irish Rally, but he's... There's a picture in the book of the, of the three of you, yes. Indeed. Uh, there is, yes, there is a picture in the book. And he, the thing is that he's somebody who had, a, a obviously, a, an interesting, shall we say, career to do with the troubles in Northern Ireland. But he's overcome that, got together, worked, 
properly in the legal side. And he, mind you, it's the same as a number of people have been like that. For example, Nelson Mandela, but I never met him. Mm-hmm. But Martin McGuinness, I only met him briefly. But he's one of those people who, if he offered to come and work with you in something, you would immediately say yes. Because you think he could get get the work, get the job done. Yeah, he'd get the job done. He's obviously a great ability, but also the ability to overcome the difficulties of earlier on. Um, I'm going to ask you another question now. Is there anybody you come across in there who just thought, "Oh, I can't be doing with them"? Uh, a number of people, but they're none of them famous. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Probably quite right. Okay, um, th- thank you very much indeed for that. And what you, now that you've uh, written the book, um, uh, got it up your chest, so to speak, um, has it been a cathartic experience? or, or? Um, Not really, but it, it's sort of satisfying in that quite often I get asked things or I read, more to the point, I read things on the internet that are completely critical but completely answered in the book. And I just say to myself, well... I realise that even some sort of serious journalists don't bother to read it. But anybody who's seriously interested in what happened can read it. And there it is. It's explained. So it, it, it's, it makes me relaxed. Whereas previously, when I read what I would think sort of absurd criticisms, it was sort of annoying because you want to answer, but you can't keep getting onto the net and answering all the trolls. So it's a kind of a troll killer, this one. Did you show it to Jean, your wife, before you, before you published it? Yes, and you know she's always refused to read it. She says, well, she says the bits, the bits about the, the only thing she did do. She said, "Don't write about our immediate family." So, for example, all the things to do with Alexander, or the business of when we had the snowboarding accident. None of that's in the book because she asked me not to. So, mm-hmm. one has to respect that. Okay, well, listen, uh, for the last time, I'll say it's called Formula One and Beyond, but your name is huge on the cover. People can't miss it. Um, The very reputable publishing house of Simon & Schuster seemed uh, fit to put it out. It's out there now, and it is a fascinating, fascinating read. Max, what are you doing now with yourself? And, uh, I mean, obviously the book has taken up a little bit of time. uh, The main activity is I'm chairman of something called Global NCAP, which brings together all the crash-testing organisations in different parts of the world. And that, you know, we're beginning to have a really big effect in places like India and and South America. That's very, very satisfying. It saves lives. And uh, what about uh, the future? Have you still got dreams, ambitions, unfulfilled things? Well, in a way, now the great dilemma is, because I don't really feel old. I know 75 really is old, but I don't feel old. So I'd like to do something else. But... uh, the great problem is, do you settle into the sort of lazy life, which I can, or do you try and do something significant again? And I'm a little bit tending towards the significant because I think you don't want to give up. And I think I also notice that the people who stop work or stop doing something serious, they tend to deteriorate. And uh, so I want to put off the deterioration if I can. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 